0: Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. So I have a dear friend, his name is Brian McDonald, and he is a masterful storyteller and... Um, he he's just very generous with his time with me. He's just absolutely brilliant. That's his job. He's a storyteller, and um, he spends time with me and he lets me pick his brain about his work and his profession with story structure and all the rest, which is really really fun. We laugh a lot and you know goof off. But every time I leave his presence, I walk away overwhelmingly inspired. Um, To be more creative and I want to start digging and reading more and all the rest. And so one thing that he is generous with talking to me about when it comes to storytelling is story structure. And when you have a structure to a story, uh, it goes like this, proposal, argument, conclusion. And he's pointed out to me a few times as of late that a lot of movies and stories these days uh, aren't that great. Because oftentimes we want to get right to the big explosion, like start Star Wars right with the explosion of the Death Star. It's like, well, that that's not really all that great. You kind of need to know that Luke Skywalker grew up on a farm with his aunt and uncle and things like that. Like, it didn't, you didn't just start with a lightsaber, you know what I mean? And he talks about how oftentimes in modern stuff that's coming out nowadays, it's just like, let's just... Let's cut the first act out altogether, and let's just get to the big explosive part. And one thing that he talks about with storytelling comes from, and that's, this is as old as like Aristotle, honestly. I mean, and it's as old as the human race <laughs> is how to pass on information, and we do that through stories. And so, one thing when it comes time to like tell a story, a guy named Rod Serling that created um, the Twilight Zone. Tove and I are, like, watching The Twilight Zone. And he was, like, kind of made this stuff a little more famous and a little more accessible. And you do it all the time when you tell stories. You might not know that you're doing it, but you're doing it all the time. And so here's what it looks like. This is called an armature, like a skeleton. Once upon a time and every day until one day. And because of that and because of that until Finally, and ever since that day, you guys want to make up a story together real quick? Sometimes I do this with our kids. Like, let's just do it. We'll fill in the blanks. Just be decent human beings about it. All right. Seattle. All right. Once upon a time, what? Somebody shout something out. There were four brothers, and every day, somebody else. They what? They fought. They fought. <laughs> This one probably has a brother. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Once upon a time and every day. Okay. Until one day. Go, Andy. One of them got hurt. Uh Uh-oh. And because of that, they had to go to the ER. And because of that, that stopped the fighting until finally, they went bankrupt. bankrupt. (laughs) And ever since that day, somebody else. Tyler, hold on. H- wrap it up, somebody. They don't see each other. They don't see each other any- what a sad church we are. Gosh. A psychologist would have a heyday with our, like, and a sociologist would, this would be a sociological study here. What a sad congregation. Just a family beat each other up and bankrupt the Okay, that's church. Y'all can go home now. That's it. Okay. Why tell you about story structure? Why is that important? Because Lisa just read for us something about the resurrection. And if you walk into church and you don't have a context for the sake of a word like resurrection, you might hear the word resurrection and think of it kind of like a fairy tale, and it might roll like water off a duck's back. The context is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And by the time you get to day six of creation, it says, and God said, let us make man in our image. And he created them male and female. And you know how the story goes. The serpent slithers into the garden, deceives Eve, and then Adam follows her in the deception, eating the forbidden fruit, and that's called the fall. And then in chapter three, in verse eight, it says God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and He called out to Adam and said, "Where are you?" And Adam and Eve they had hidden themselves, for they saw that they were naked. And then God goes on to give what we call the very first gospel. It's in chapter three, verse fifteen and sixteen, where He says. I will come down on the serpent and when my heel comes down, I will bruise my heel and I will crush his head. And that's his first instance of it's not over yet. Even though we broke God's heart and broke God's commands, we did not break God's faithfulness. Hmm. And from there, God didn't just send Adam and Eve out of the garden. What do he do? He says he took an animal and killed it and clothed them in their nakedness, clothed their nakedness and sent them away. They were gonna live like strangers on the earth. You kind of feel that way, don't you? We feel as though we're not totally home. Your soul feels naked. And in the good news of the gospel, Paul uses the metaphor of clothing. Put on Christ. So, when it comes to resurrection, resurrection is how that goes or comes about. I'd like to pray and then jump right into the scripture. Let's do that. God, my prayer today has been all week, uh, is that by you, by your Holy Spirit, would cause the dead to live, and the weary to become unburdened and strengthened, and that the discouraged would find hope, and that the those who are thriving this morning would exult in you and who you are today. God, I, my. I'd be a fool to think that my words somehow have the power to change people, to change myself. But you're not lacking any power today. (laughs) So we ask now that you take what, what we are and how we are and introduce your glory today to us. Speak to us. I ask that you would speak to and through me, reign over us now, King Jesus. And let us hear you. And I pray today that as we walk out of the church building, we would walk out singing the psalm, it was good for us to go into the house of the Lord. Amen. All right, let's do it. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there's no resurrection. All right, who are the Sadducees? They show up three times in the Bible, um, so there's not a lot on them. Also, none of their literature survived after AD 70, nor did any of the members of the Sadducees. They were wiped out by Rome, so all we have to know about who this political-slash-religious party is is In the three times they show up in the new testament and then in the writings of the early jewish historian known as josephus so they're just this obscure group but here's what we do know about them Um, the sadducees we have here we know they they deny the resurrection Uh, the sadducees also believed in the first five books of the bible genesis exodus leviticus numbers deuteronomy the law But it was questionable about whether or not they believed anything else after that, whether they read the prophets or not, or accepted the prophets as speaking on behalf of God. But they clung to Moses. Uh, They also denied resurrection, afterlife, angels. Yeah, I think that's about it, that's kinda it. They denied those things. And they were very much so a political party. They were very uh, liberal when it comes to their politics, but they were very conservative when it comes to their religion. So politically, they supported Rome that occupied Israel. And Rome seemed to think that was cute, essentially. And so these are one of the opposing groups that show up and question Jesus and challenge Jesus. And so they came to Jesus with, and presented this sort of a theological, relational riddle, a scenario scenario. Um, and they want him to kind of solve it. But their motive, like all of Jesus' other opponents, is one to trap him or to embarrass him. And they're challenging Jesus around what he believes about the resurrection. And what it would look like practically, because it sounds like such a far-fetched idea. Like, okay, if it were to happen, what's it, what's it going to be like then, really, Jesus? So... They asked him the question in verse 19, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, what's, what's that about? Well, um, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, Moses wrote this instruction for the people of Israel, that if uh, there's a married couple and the husband passes away, uh, if the husband has a brother who has not been married yet. He's to marry this woman and raise up children. And this was to preserve the family line. It also had a lot to do with uh, securing property and so on. Like, okay, so that was the law for the people of God. And they mentioned that. They also uh, didn't mention that it's also written about in Genesis chapter 38. That was a practice. But, you know, they missed that part. Anyway, so they mentioned this, and they say, so... uh, there were seven brothers. The first took, a, took the wife, and he had died and left no offspring, and then the second brother, and he left no offspring, and the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. So there's the scenario. A woman had buried seven Husbands, and was left without a child. And again, like we, we just are in such a different culture, so far removed. Um, to be without a child in this day and age, at that that day and age, uh, was to leave a woman in a place of extreme vulnerability. So, here's the question, though: the question and the scenario that they presented Jesus shows that they haven't the faintest clue about the heart of God. Did you hear the question? Whose wife will she be? Later. They didn't ask questions about her actual life, though. Here's what I mean. Jesus, when someone buries a spouse and is left without children, who should take care of her? That would have been a good question from a religious scholar, don't you think? Jesus... After a woman buries her third husband, how should we come around her and pray for her? Jesus, after a woman has stood by seven gravesides, crying, watching her dreams go unrealized, and she's losing her faith, Jesus, what's the best way to show God's love? Wouldn't that be a good question to ask about someone who's going through tremendous suffering? Sure. But no, they paint a scenario of shame and confusion and death. And they say it with like a sarcastic tone. As this, Jesus, at the so-called resurrection that you believe in and preach, how is she going to feel? When God raises every, everyone from the dead isn't she going to be quite embarrassed to be standing around with seven husbands? You see, they're following the same logic of the serpent in Genesis. They take a moment that's supposed to be filled with unspeakable glory and turn it into shame. Does that make sense? They take something as beautiful as the resurrection and go, this is gonna be really embarrassing. She's gonna be standing around with these seven guys. How embarrassing. And that's the nature of the serpent's approach to Scripture. You see, Satan doesn't just outright reject Scripture. Just twisting it enough is is all he needs to do. This is how it works. Did God actually say, This is what we see happening in Genesis, and it happens all the way down through the whole Bible. And when Jesus talks about Satan, what does he say? He's the father of lies. He speaks his own native tongue. That's all he can do is lie. He twists things. He twists things. That's why the occult store on 45th isn't a threat. (laughs) You know the one, the giant pentagram next to whatever used to be, Slate Coffee. Yeah, that's hardly a threat to the gospel. It begins with an idea and a question of did God say? And yet, the resurrection oh, sorry. It's a question that consistently results in shame. The result is shame. Yet, resurrection, according to the New Testament, is not only the death of death, it's the death of all that came under the curse. Starting with shame. Starting with shame. In the gospel, Jesus covers your shame every time you walk into church, every time you stand in and receive communion. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you are not to feel or be filled with shame. He defeated Everything that might stand between you and God. You are the beloved of God. But these cranky religious people, boy, they didn't like that idea at all. Because we like to feel like we earned something. We had something to do with this. But grace, it's not cheap. It's free. Okay. And Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures or the power of God. I love this. And here's an unbelievably offensive thing that Jesus would say, and he wouldn't make it five minutes in Seattle. You're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. You're wrong. Not everybody is right. There's no such thing as your truth and my truth and their truth and it's not this mushy, God has not this like mushy a la carte religion in which you create him in your own image and then your whole responsibility in life is just to self actualize and do what you wanna do but try not to get on anybody's nerves or frustrate anybody or say anything offensive. That's, nope. Jesus just has no problem looking at men and women like you and me and just saying, Without trembling, without shaking, without fear, you could not be more wrong. You're wrong. Two plus two is not five. Truth is not relative. We don't just manufacture it. That's how it actually works. I know, it's like crazy offensive. But deep within each one of us, we long for truth. You don't want your doctor lying to you, you want your doctor telling you the truth. Jesus has no problem looking at people saying, you're wrong, you're wrong about some things, you're wrong about some things. As a church, this is something we need to lean into big time as followers of Jesus, It's to lean into the fact that truth is real and we're playing with life and death It's serious. So he says, you're wrong. You're wrong. Full stop. In what way did they not know the scriptures? He said, you don't know the scriptures, which is very offensive to somebody who's, you know, been to seminary or whatever. You don't know what you're talking about. Well, here's where they were wrong. They didn't believe in the resurrection, yet the Old Testament teaches resurrection consistently. All throughout. Do you know that? If you mark verses down, here's just a few. 1 Kings chapter 17, 2 Kings chapter 4, Isaiah chapter 26, Psalm 71, Ezekiel 37, Hosea 13, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 12, Jonah chapter 1. Here's just one verse from Job. I haven't read much Job in church lately, but wow, look at this. I know that my redeemer lives, and in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. (laughs) I myself will see him with my eyes, my own eyes, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Can you believe that? Do you feel that move within you? You will see God with your own eyes? That's, that's the greatest thing in the whole. That's it. Job, Old Testament. He's like, Are you guys, this is not why you're wrong. You don't know your Old Testament. You guys keep denying the resurrection. Have you read Job? Did you read Moses? Did you read yeah, anything? No? You didn't get around to that? All right. You don't know the scriptures. And this was Jesus' greatest indictment against his, his opponents. And so he presses their buttons. Because while they postured to know the word. Jesus was the word among them. And Jesus placed an infinite value on the scripture. The highest value. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, what was he reading out of? The scriptures. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, what did he consistently quote back? Scriptures. When Jesus is being opposed by the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, what is he constantly going to? He's going to the scriptures. When Jesus gets on his knees and prays in the garden of Gethsemane, what does he say to his father? Father, sanctify my disciples by your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus's life was absolutely saturated, dripping with the scripture. If you bumped into him, you would hear psalms come out. Jesus was immersed, immersed in the Bible. He's the living word. The word made flesh, dwelt among us. Meaning that Jesus took everything written in the book and said, let me go down there and show them. In human form, the invisible God. Exegeting the Father is how John 1 says it to reach into and pull out and put on display and say, this is what the father's like. This is why we worship our king. Oh, so he says, but you don't know the scriptures. And he didn't even bother scrutinizing finer points of theology with them, which is amazing. He said, you don't know the scriptures, which means, as we just told a story a minute ago, that terrible story about the family all beating each other up and bankrupting. When he says you don't know the scriptures, he's saying you don't know the story of God. You don't know the heart of God. You don't know the character of God. You don't know the will of God. You don't know the way of God. And that's why you look so incongruent to God. You don't know the story. You don't have a North Star. You don't have anything you live in reference to. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know how you're supposed to feel in this world. You don't know how you're supposed to look at the world. But you have a religious title called Sadducee. (laughs) Knowing the scriptures in the way that Jesus wants us to know the scriptures produces a healthy fear of God and a deep love for the world and human beings that are made in God's image. and I use the word fear of God because it's scriptural, but it is the consistent experience of people that what happens when the penny drops and you start to come to your senses and you suddenly realize you are in the presence of God, that you are on holy ground, that you have, like, have you had that experience in your own life where for some Unbeknown reason other than just grace, <laughs> you are keenly aware that God is looking at you, that God has its attention on you. What's that experience like? The one who hung every star in the galaxy is looking right at you, and he's not Thor with a hammer. He was the one that was nailed to a cross for you. What does that create within you? Well, suddenly we sober up and we're not very silly and we're not goofing off anymore. You have the same experience that's described by Job or Peter or Paul or any of the other saints down through the ages. You get very serious and you bow in reverence and worship. You do. Listen to the 8th century prophet Isaiah as he spo- as God speaks and gives the response that God's looking for. This is beautiful. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. <laughs> Just props his feet up like on an ottoman. The earth. Where's the house that you'll build for me? Where's the re- where will my resting place be? It's not my hand made all these things, and so they came into being, declares the Lord. Basically, are you going to build a house for me? How big is it going to be? You can't house me. (laughs) These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit, who tremble at my word. If you want the attention of God, he says this is how the response needs to be to his word. This is the one to whom I'll look the one who is is contrite like naged meaning literally to be to be made crippled to have your legs cut out from under you contrite to tremble at his word have you do you remember the last time you trembled maybe it was in some you walked into the room and Your spouse or a friend gave you news that just shook you. You remember the moment, you don't have to, like, we don't have to go any further than that, you know. (laughs) Or when you stood in a hospital room and you trembled. I remember I trembled. We were at the Smith Tower downtown that used to be the tallest building in the world or whatever, (laughs) when it was built or whatever. Now it's like, I think this building might be taller, but um, we were there in 2020, right like the night before everything shut down. My homie Jesse looked out the window and like the shipping yard was all of a sudden super empty. He's like, look at that. I was like, oh, I remember trembling, feeling, what's what's about that? What's going on in the world? To tremble is the experience to bow low, and as silly as it might look, I mean, have you bowed down before God in a minute? How long has it been since, you told your, since your soul told your body how to feel and how to act? You know what I mean? To just bow on your face and just say, <laughs> God, God, you're my king. God, I revere you. God have mercy on me. I I have thoughts that go through my mind that don't belong there. I have motives of my heart that offend you. There are things in my past that would just undo me if the world found out. God, I'm on borrowed time. I'm on borrowed flesh. I'm on borrowed breath. Everything I have comes from you. Every good gift from the eyes that I use every day, the hands you've given me, the mind you've given me, the resources you've made available to me. I don't remember the last time I said thank you. God, I can't believe you would send your son to die for a man like me or a woman like me. To bring me in. I'm serious. When we talk about trembling before God, it's not for show. And this is something you can do when you go home and you close your door and get alone with God. And he who sees you in secret will reward you, is what Jesus told us in Matthew 6. To bow down, close your door where no one's looking and the king of the universe suddenly is looking at you. And saying, yes, yeah, son, yes, daughter, what do you need? What do you need? I'm here for you. You know what Seattle, Washington needs right now is not a lot of know-it-alls from the church. You know what it could use? And that doesn't mean don't know our theology and apologetics and all that stuff. What Seattle needs and what our own souls desperately need is to just humble ourselves before God and confess to him who he is and who we are and plead for his grace. And to walk about in our city like the early apostles did. It's, it was clear that they were uneducated. Acts chapter 4, it was clear. Peter was kind of a redneck. He was uneducated. But they had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. And people that walk with Jesus don't walk with a swagger. People that walk with Jesus They're different. They're just different. That's the language Paul used with Titus. They're a peculiar people. They're different. Do you know some followers of Jesus? Yeah. Hmm. So you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God, Jesus accused them of. And it's not just, do you know the power of God? I'm serious. I don't mean have you like been to a, a graveside and some, <laughs> someone's resurrected from the dead, though it might happen. Um, but do you know the power of God? Have you experienced it or at least watched it in somebody else's life? Yeah. Like some of you are married right now because of the power of God and nothing else because you would have killed each other or something. Do you know the power of God? Some of you have been physically healed. You've been physically healed. Whether you just woke up and all was made well and the doctors went, we don't know how the scan turned out like this, or God worked miraculously through the hand of a doctor. Do you know the power of God? Oh my gosh, some of you look around in this room right now, you shouldn't have any faith based on what you've been through. And you're here in this church this morning, not because of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, though that's a great one, and we love that. You're here in this church this morning because of the preservation of the Savior who held on to you through your dark night of the soul while you kicked and screamed and threw your fit and doubted and raged and shook your fist at God. He still held on to you is anybody with me today? Yeah? I'm telling you, if you look around and you start tapping on some shoulders in here, and you start hearing testimonies and stories of things that God has carried people through, your faith would increase. And you wouldn't just read it in the scriptures, you'd read it on the letters of the lives sitting all around you. Oh, I almost stepped on my glasses. Ha <laughs> ha! My wife just is watching me. She's like, there they go! Didn't step on my. She was trembling. (laughs) Ah. Zing. All right. But the power of God. Do you know the power of God? If you don't, or you've grown dull or dead or apathetic or lethargic in your faith, you know today there's no shame for you in Jesus to just say, Holy Spirit, come flood my life. Flood my life. I don't want to read the stories of the saints. I want to live one. I want to see you move in my marriage, in my home, in my family, in my neighborhood, in my school, in my workplace, I want to see you move. I want to see people meet Jesus. I want to see things change. I don't want to sit back as apathetic and indifferent and let everything just happen in front of me and then I just complain about it on Twitter. Like, oh, I can't believe they passed that whatever. Do something, pray. Invite God in and see if he doesn't move. See if he's actually reluctant to save Seattle, Washington. I bet he's not. He saved you. But to invite him in. Holy Spirit, come grow us as your people. I used to have a vision for a church when I was probably 26 years old, once you're 43, it's all like, I don't know. And then after COVID, now I really don't know how to tell time. But when I was about 26 years old, I was uh, serving on a church staff in in Georgia, and all the guys would show up to set the church up on Sunday mornings. And all they would talk about is Georgia Bulldogs football, which I know, I know, I know. (laughs) <laughs> Duarte went to Tech, so it's—you've <laughs> never said amen in church, I mean, but we got to—I'm just—I'm just—I'm just kidding. I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I love you. This man takes me fishing. He takes half our guys fishing. He'll take you. All right. dogs. Um, if my family hears—there we go. If my family hears this sermon, I'm not going to give them your number or address, I promise. Okay, but— The guys would show up and they would talk about Bulldogs football. And I remember remember thinking, we're setting the church up right now. Wouldn't it be amazing to like show up, and there's nothing wrong with talking football or fishing or whatever, truly. We got mentor groups that go to happy hour, like whatever, right? But wouldn't it be something to show up in a church where the place is packed? Like, I don't know. 20 minutes before church, and people are just together, like genuinely like, reading the scripture together, praying together, talking to one another, like working with one another, saying this is what I saw God do in my family this week or in my life, Like that it was just so vibrant that we just couldn't wait to be together, that nothing, not brunch, not the Hawks, nothing could like, come between us and getting together to be present to one another and worship. And God's been reviving that in me as of late. To see a church take what God is already doing here and just turn it up (laughs) in our worship, in our devotion, in our commitment, in our self denial, in our service of the poor, in the proclamation of the gospel. You want to go? I do. Like, yeah, power of God. Where do you start? If you're going, I don't know where to start. I know I'm going way too long, but it's your fault. You came. Um, where do you start? Just start with anything. Do you know the average North American owns three Bibles? <laughs> three. I don't, I don't want to know how many I have. I don't want to know. I got a Dolly Bible that's super cool. It's weird, but it's cool. But get a Bible and start. Just Start. Sorry, get a children's Bible. If you're like, I don't know, I don't like the grown-up Bible. Get, get the Jesus Storybook Bible. My best friend, Don, he drew a kid's Bible. I don't know. Just pick one. Get a New Living Translation. Get a message translation. Just pick one. Open the word and do, say what Samuel, the prophet, said. First Samuel chapter 3, verse 10. Speak, Lord, your servant's listening. Speak to me. Speak. Please speak to me. I don't want to stand on the sidelines. Move in my life, God. Do that. Do that with a couple brothers and sisters around and see if God doesn't move in you. See if you don't find yourself suddenly going, I'm changing. I'm not the man I want to be, but I'm not who I used to be. He's working in me. God works through his spirit. God works through the people around as we invite him. Okay, I got to hurry up. So, boy, there's so much left. You guys are dead. I'm just kidding. Um, you don't know the spirit, or you don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they'll neither marry or be given in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. So Jesus says, the resurrection essentially, it will be as though resurrection will be so glorified, it'll be beyond what Eden was in the beginning. It will be beyond. There won't be giving and receiving in marriage with Adam and Eve. It will be so beyond even that. They're not given in marriage. That will be the glorified state. It'll be so complete, so perfect. Questions about marriage won't even be on our minds. Christ the husband and the church's bride as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? I love that this is the only book they read. <laughs> He's like, have you, not, you know that one book that you're on, the only book you read and you're into? Have you not read this part? Like the most famous part, the part of the burning bush part? It's like, Jesus had a little sarcasm to him, too, I, I guess. How God spoke to Moses saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You're quite wrong. Says it again. You're wrong. So he references that famous part and says, remember when God speaks to Moses, 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 take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. And Moses begins to say, well, who are you? He says, I'm the God of Abraham, present tense. I'm the God of Isaac, present tense. I'm the God of Jacob, present tense. Those guys have been buried for centuries. Oh, that just means you haven't seen them for centuries. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Which means, means, according to Exodus chapter three, and right here in Mark chapter 12, the saints that have gone before us are not dead, but living. If you've buried somebody that you love in Christ, They are living according to Jesus himself. Not the God of the dead, the God of the living. And I'd encourage you to read the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Those scoundrels that messed up all the time were living. Messed up just like you and me, living in the presence of God now. Hmm. This is what led our hmm, beloved Tim Keller, who passed away on May 19th, to say in his last words, did you read them? There's no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. And then he died. (laughs) The resurrection filled that man with so much faith. All he did was smile back at the darkest moment. Bring it on. There's no downside. So from now, between here and each of us, we'll have a last day. We do death practice. How do you practice death? Through trembling. through repenting, through getting acquainted with the fact that I'm, I'm just a human, I'm not God, but I belong to God. So we do death practice because resurrection is promised. Oh man, Tim wasn't scared because he knew the scriptures and the power of God and you can too. This is the greatest news possible. And friends, if you don't belong to Jesus, I'd be unfaithful to you, and certainly to God, to tell you, if you don't belong to Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, according to the Apostles' Creed says, he will return to judge the living and the dead. To those who are in Christ we are raised to eternal life and to those who are not in Christ are raised to destruction you're quite wrong Jesus isn't playing with your soul in fact he takes your soul so seriously that he died to save you if you want to know Jesus today i want to talk to you if you're like i think you're talking directly to me pastor i am I'm totally talking to you. Like, did you come here with an agenda to convert me? Yes, 1,000%. And we'll be here next week doing the same thing. And tomorrow, and every, I, yes, I completely want you to know Jesus. Who loved you and gave himself for you. Okay. That's all I got. That's the nine pages. Let's call it there. Um, I want to pray, and then I'll invite our worship team. Jesus, we love you, thank you for your word. Your word is truth, and we are wrong. And by your mercy, you bring us in and teach us what is right. And in living in what is right, we become righteous. Jesus, thank you that our salvation is based on your resurrection And our hope is in the reality that we will experience resurrection just as you did. We reverence you as our king and we ask that in the days to come our hearts would tremble before your word, before you. And that we would take up great confidence in who you are and find overwhelming joy in your presence, and in the love that you have for us as your own. Thank you for hearing our prayer. We pray these things to you, God, our Father, through Jesus, our Son, by the Spirit. Amen.